Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I hope you can hear me uh, well. My name is uh, Ian White, I'm uh, Vice Chancellor of the University of Bath, and I really would like to welcome everybody most warmly uh, to this lecture this evening. Uh, it really is a great pleasure to welcome so many uh, students, colleagues, uh, and indeed members of the public uh, to hear of what I'm sure will be an outstanding lecture given by our speaker, Philip Rycroft, former Permanent Secretary at the Department for Exiting the European Union. We're so grateful, sir, that you've come to speak to us tonight. Uh, Brexit, um, our topic tonight, has, of course, great implications for the University of Bath. Uh, we're proud to welcome over 100 nationalities amongst our staff and students. And they enrich greatly our activities. And indeed, our success, to a great extent, depends on their expertise, dynamism, and ideas. And in a world where our success has to be at an international level, it's vital that we continue to be seen as an exciting and welcoming place to all. And indeed, actually, it's a true delight to see continuing increase in applications, both from prospective students in the UK, but also from other parts of the world. However, as we're all aware, the UK is due to leave the EU in just 10 days' time. And respecting the different members of our institution will have their own views, leavers or remainers. The university itself, however, is currently seeking as a matter of priority to show our support and care for our members from across the EU, something that we're really committed to doing both in the short and the longer term. Following the triggering of Article 50 on 29th March 2017, almost three years ago, we've been anticipating Brexit. We've also been monitoring developments to see how we'll be affected in such areas as funding of research, purchasing of goods and services, data protection, student recruitment, and what support will be required for staff and students from the EU. Our academic colleagues have also provided commentary and have appeared in the media, offering their expert views on potential economic impact, social policy, and indeed political climate. One example of this is the project led by uh, Professor Nick Pierce, Director of the Institute of Policy Research and the Centre for London, in collaboration with the Institute of Mathematical Innovation, IMI, at the University of Bath. The project researched the potential impacts of Brexit on London, exploring the risks it poses to the London's economy and international position and the policies needed to tackle this. It also examined how increased devolution of taxation and spending powers to the mayor and London boroughs could help address long-standing challenges faced by the city in housing, infrastructure, childcare, and other areas. The research is fed into the public debate on Brexit in London and helped take the argument for greater fiscal devolution forward by showing tangible possibilities and outcomes for the city. But, as Dr. Bruce Morley from the Department of Economics noted, there's a problem with predicting the post-Brexit economy. Arguably, all studies on the economy in this area are limited by the lack of similar precedents to base the analysis on. 
So what lies ahead for the UK? What sort of trade deal will the new government seek? What will that mean for relations between the four governments of the UK? How will the battle for sovereignty play out in the months a year? I'm delighted to have an expert who will be <laughs> so well placed to answer these questions. Thank you, sir, for coming. And I pass to Professor Pierce to introduce. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Vice Chancellor. And, um, uh, the Vice Chancellor mentioned Article 50. In, in this uh, lecture hall uh, just a couple of years ago, um, in the week that Article 50 was um, uh, triggered, we had uh, uh, Lord Kerr here. People may remember um, uh, Lord Kerr, uh, a, a former uh, senior civil servant in the Foreign Office, uh, deemed by most people to be the author of Article 50, never expecting it to be applied by the United Kingdom. Uh, very different circumstances he envisaged. Um, the things he said to us on that evening about how the Brexit negotiations would play out turned out to be very prescient, depressingly so in many ways, uh, the things he said. And I think tonight we have now, as we arrive at the point 10 days away, as the Vice-Chancellor said, from the moment of leaving the United Kingdom, it's uh, really, really a wonder for us to be able to hear from somebody who also has been in a, in a position of being at the heart of government, seeing how these things have unfolded, and therefore able uh, to give us, I think, um, a unique perspective on much of what we can expect to come uh, in the months and years ahead. And people may have seen a flavour of what Philip uh, Rykoff will say to us this evening in a piece he wrote for The Guardian today. But I think there are just two bits of his career I'd like just to draw attention to briefly before asking you to speak for it. The first is, as it says up there, former permanent secretary at the demand for exiting the European <coughs> Union, so right at the heart of the, that bit of the government machinery which had to lead this process and which will be folded up in 10 days' time and dispersed back into the rest of Whitehall. But also, very importantly, um, appointed second permanent secretary for the head of the UK governance group in the Cabinet Office from 2015 to 2019, which effectively, uh, alongside the work that uh, he did for Nick Clegg, has a, uh, a perspective from the heart of government on the constitution of the UK, the relations between its nations and regions, and many of the questions which Brexit has thrown up for the future of the Union. Uh, and those two perspectives, if you like, on Brexit, but also on what Brexit means for the United Kingdom, are absolutely critical and will be in, in the months ahead. So it's a, uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much, Philip. Over to you. Thank you very, thank you very much. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Thank you for welcoming me here. Um, we didn't, of course, plan this to be about 10 days out from exit, because when you invited me, there were sort of all various dates that we might be leaving, but anyway, I'll, I'm going to use up my best lines if I'm not careful. So thank you very much for um, the opportunity to speak to you tonight. Thank you uh, for the welcome. So I am here as it's sort of billed on the, on the screen to talk to you about Brexit uh, and the future governance of the UK. Uh, at least that's what the lecture has been billed as. And I'm very gratified, actually, that so many of you have turned up because, of course, we do leave the European Union in 10 days' time, and that surely will be that. Brexit, done. Uh, why should I be giving you more words said on this most examined and dissected and discussed of issues? Surely time to move on. And in many ways, though I do make a living out of Brexit still in different guises, I wish it were time to move on through over three and a half long years and a painful referendum campaign before that, we've all had plenty of time to have our fill of Brexit and everything that is said about it. And at some point, this whole thing will begin to fade from view 
to become the domain of the historians who will perhaps analyse Brexit with some dispassion and explain more clearly what we only half see now about how we came to this pass and what it tells us about ourselves and our future. But I think that moment is not yet. For sure the UK will leave the EU on the 31st of January. Big Ben won't toll, thereby ruining several lines in my speech. I'm sorry about that. Uh, but there will be celebration for some. There'll be mourning for others and for many, perhaps, a weary indifference. The legal order will have changed and to that extent Brexit will indeed be done. But much will conspire to dull the aftermath of that moment. The UK will enter the peculiar limbo of the transition period, out of the EU institutions but still abiding by EU rules, old and new. The government itself will be keen to move on, to take Brexit off the front pages and convince us that it, the government, will be about other things. Only symbolically will this be a big moment. For the most part, on the 1st of February, life will continue as if not much has happened. But what that moment portends is huge. The decision to leave the EU will have consequences that will ramify through our national life for years to come. Exit and what it brings in its train will shape the British state and our conception of ourselves as a nation or nations in way perhaps that we can barely yet comprehend. Brexit in its own way, if not quite a revolution, is a seismic upheaval in the affairs of the United Kingdom. Like all such upheavals, it has generated its own momentum and dynamic. Who back in June 2016 predicted anything like the political trajectory we have been on over these past three and a half years? It is my contention in this lecture that while the facts of a legal Brexit may finally be made real, we are barely at the starting gate of dealing with the consequences of Brexit. I want to peer into the mists ahead to see if we can discern any outline of things to come, of the choices and challenges that Brexit will bring in its wake and what this will mean for the governance of the United Kingdom. I do not aim to predict that future nor to prescribe it, but I do want to elucidate some of the drivers that will shape that future as a way to help us think more clearly about it. I will do so through three lenses. I want to look at the immediate issues that face the UK as we disentangle ourselves from the EU. This is the most discernible territory, the likely shape of our future relationship with the EU, the prospects for wider trade deals, and the consequent economic and regulatory impacts on the UK, all told our Brexit legacy. There is now a rough route map into this space. The government has already made some decisive choices about what road to follow. But there has been less analysis of what those choices will mean, and I suspect that even the government has yet to work out just how deeply Brexit will cut into the economic and regulatory life of the country. I want to look at the political consequences of Brexit. We have just witnessed a general election that has truly shaken the political order of the UK to a large extent on the back of a deep malaise engendered 
by the Brexit process, or rather the failure to deliver on that process. Brexit itself uh, was at heart driven by a desire to reclaim sovereignty for the United Kingdom. Now that general election has ensured that we will leave the EU, is that it? Does that reclaim sovereignty settle the question and we go back into something like politics as broadly recognisable as normal? Or is the energy of that upheaval not yet spent? If so, where will it vent next? And finally, I want to look at the emerging challenge to the United Kingdom itself. There are competing versions of sovereignty in this country of ours. Brexit has put more heat under that pot. As the consequences of Brexit unfold, can the United Kingdom itself hold together? So first on the Brexit legacy. The immediate focus once we leave will be on the negotiations and our future relationship with the EU. It will be the government's fervent wish, I have absolutely no doubt, that these negotiations should become as boring and technical as possible, as quickly as possible. No drama, thank you, just let's get this done away from prying eyes and with a complacent parliament to hand, the government may, at least for a time, get its wish. There can be no complaints here. The direction of travel was clearly set out when the Prime Minister renegotiated the political declaration. This was as sure a pointer to the future, uh, the future he envisages as any, and was hardly masked through the election campaign. As Monsieur Barnier made clear uh, way back in the early days of the withdrawal negotiations, the UK has a binary choice on its future relationship with the EU. Either a close relationship inside the single market, something akin to the European Economic Area, and possibly the customs unions as well, or a free trade agreement, perhaps based on the current best-in-class, that that the EU has with Canada. Mrs May, as Prime Minister, struggled long and hard to defy that remorseless logic, pinioned by her own early insistence that free movement would end, totally averse to any continuing jurisdiction for the European Court of Justice. She sought a way out in the Chequers deal, remember that? Now feels almost like ancient history. That doomed attempt to square the circle through some process of regulatory alignment that would limit the economic impact of Brexit while leaving the UK outside the single market and the customs union. The department I led at the time lost its Secretary of State and assorted junior ministers as a consequence uh, as, as, uh, of that proposal as they saw in this a denial of the true path of Brexit. The current Prime Minister was of course the other Secretary of State who resigned in the aftermath of Chequers. His position has been consistent since. Embrace the logic of the Barnier choice and seek a free trade agreement with the EU, seeing the limitations of such a deal, not as a cost, but as a liberation. Now, there was a lot of chatter in the immediate election aftermath about whether this position would shift with the Prime Minister pursuing a softer Brexit as a result of all of those northern and Midland seats with the associated manufacturing industries coming into the Conservative fold. But that is to repeat the category error that Monsieur Barnier, 
so firmly nailed back in 2017. Bluntly, the only way that the impact of, of Brexit on UK business can be mitigated is by following the first of the Barnier paths into something close to the EEA. And there is no way that this Prime Minister will go anywhere close to that. So what are the concerns about the impact of a free trade agreement? It's really quite simple. Leaving the single market and the customs union means that the UK will create a new a trade border with the EU. That border, a literal one for the movement of goods, a virtual one for the movement of services, will create new costs for businesses seeking to trade across that border. The negotiations might determine whether that's a thin border or a thick border, but a border is a border. Even with a zero tariff, zero quota deal, goods crossing that border will require customs declarations, security declarations, regulatory checks, and rules of origin checks. Under a free trade agreement with the EU, British businesses will face new checks and new costs and will become less competitive in their main market as a result. There is a choice as to how thick that border is. If the EU and the UK regulatory regimes remain broadly aligned and the respective authorities have confidence in the goods passing across that border, the thoroughness of the checks can be minimised. But if the UK seeks to diverge from the regulatory framework of the EU, the EU authorities are likely to impose a heavier burden of proof that the goods coming onto the EU market meet EU standards. Take one example. The Prime Minister spoke about liberalising the UK regime on genetically modified crops. This, I'm arguing slightly controversial now, is, in my view, a perfectly justifiable policy position. The caution of EU regulation, I used to deal with this stuff in Brussels in the mid-90s, is not supported, in my view, by the science or the experience of other countries. But if the UK does, does take a more liberal approach, and the EU does not, uh, any exporter of food products from the UK into the EU will have to demonstrate conclusively to the EU authorities that that product does not contain any GM content. The quality of access that the UK is able to negotiate uh, will depend too on how far the UK is prepared to go in signing up to binding commitments on the so-called level playing field issues. These are the ancillary rules to the single market on labour market standards, environmental regulation and competition and state aid policy deemed vital by most member states as a means of ensuring fair com competitive conditions of trade within the single market. It has been clear since the referendum that one of the top concerns in the EU capitals was that Brexit would allow the UK to weaken its regulatory standards in a way that would make it, in their eyes, unfairly competitive in the UK's main market in the EU. The UK has a choice to become what is dubbed Singapore on Thames, I think rather unfairly possibly on Singapore, but there we go. But there will be a price to pay in terms of the quality of access for goods to the EU market. On services, where the UK, remember, has a surplus in its trade with the EU, there is no conceivable deal on the table that will give British service providers 
as good access to the EU market as they have now. At worst, they face a reversion to so-called home state rules, having to meet different regulatory conditions imposed by each member state in order to do business in that member state. At best, some of the edges will be knocked off home state rules by agreements on things such as labour mobility, mutual recognition of professional qualifications, rights of establishment and data flows. But even on the best outcome, doing business in the EU for British firms will become harder. The Prime Minister has, of course, set out the ambition to conclude a free trade agreement by the end of 2020, ruling out now, or in heading into legislation, any extension of the transition period. Is a deal doable on that timetable? This, uh, in civil service speak, will be tough. Uh, it means concluding the main part of the negotiations within a very tight window. Negotiations can't really begin until the EU negotiating mandate is confirmed, which won't be much before the end of next month. And the deal will have to be pinned down by late autumn in order to allow time for ratification to be concluded before the end of the year. This, in trade terms, is a crushingly tight timetable. Perhaps the most that can be achieved in that time is a thin free trade agreement on industrial goods alone. Even including agri-food could be problematic if the UK is insisting on regulatory divergence. A thin FTA would at least provide certainty on the future trading relationship on goods, but will only be achievable if the UK is prepared to meet EU conditions on level playing field issues, probably as a minimum a commitment to so-called no regression clauses, in other words, to maintain standards at least as high as they currently are. And the other issue that will need to be sorted to get the deal done is fish. And I don't know how many fisheries experts uh, we have in the room tonight, but by the end of this year, we will all be experts on fisheries. For a small sector of the economy, only about 0.12% of value add in the UK, fisheries attracts a disproportionate amount of political attention, both here and in coastal EU states. The argument will be about access to, e, uh, to UK waters for boats from France, Netherlands, Denmark, Spain and elsewhere, and about access to the EU market for UK fish exports. Passions run very high on fisheries. Many UK fishermen supported Brexit as a means to reserve very much more of the catch in UK waters for themselves. Others, particularly shell fishermen, risk losing their livelihoods if they lose access to EU markets to sell their produce. For their part, French and Dutch and Spanish and Danish and other EU fishermen will argue that their access to UK waters long predated UK, UK membership of the EU. These are historic rights. So as I say, expect to hear a lot more about fisheries before the end of the year and Macron, for example, will be absolutely insistent that the UK cut a good deal on fisheries. If the government is not prepared to accept the conditions set out by the EU, the risk of failure even to achieve a thin free trade agreement by the end of the year will be very real. 
This will, be not, will not be the same as the no-deal scenario that we faced at various points before the withdrawal agreement was finally concluded. That deal will remain in place with the commitments on money, on citizens, and critically on Northern Ireland. But there would be no trade deal. The UK would trade with the EU on WTO terms from the beginning of 2021, so taking us over a different cliff edge, but a cliff edge nonetheless. There will be some, I have no doubt, who will argue that the difference between the sort of thin free trade agreement that might be on the table and trade in WTO terms will actually not be very great. And there will be some truth in that. Expect those voices to get more voluble as the year progresses and the EU negotiating conditions are better understood. The advocates of the so-called clean break uh, will not go away. But our relationship with the EU is not just about trade in goods. As the political declaration that accompanied the withdrawal agreement sets out, there are a multiplicity of other policy domains where it is overwhelm overwhelmingly in the interests of both the UK and the EU to have a functioning and defined relationship. I've already touched on services. Other things that will need to be sorted out include energy and transport, intellectual property, public procurement, management of digital markets, science and research cooperation, student exchange, and so on. Beyond that, there is the security relationship, hugely important for citizens both in the UK and the EU, both foreign policy and security cooperation and internal security. All of these things are complicated issues in their own right. Some progress this year is possible, even likely, for example, on foreign policy and security cooperation, which is mainly already handled in intergovernmental space, making some sort of arrangement with the, EU, with the UK much simpler. But there is zero possibility that negotiations on all of these things will be concluded by the end of this year. So what happens if we can't get agreement across this great range of issues by the year end? If trade negotiations have broken down, there is a high risk that we will effectively be in no-deal territory on many or all of these other issues as well, compounding the shock as we leave the transition period. So the stakes are very high. If we get a trade deal, it is likely that there will be the momentum to sustain arrangements in other policy areas that are still to be negotiated through some sort of mini-transitions. We may even get to the point where both sides agree that some sort of overall wrapper is required for the relationship, something for the cognoscenti in the room akin to an association agreement, not least to provide for the institutional infrastructure, including dispute settlement procedures that is required to handle a complex international relationship. Concluding all of that will take time. From an EU perspective, it will also be an agreement in so-called mixed competence territory, engaging interests that formally lie within member state responsibility, as well as issues of EU competence. That means that that will have to be ratified by member state parliaments, even some regional assemblies. That's not going to happen by next Christmas or for many Christmases to come. 
failure to agree will see the UK then tumbling off various cliff edges at the end of the year as we exit the transition period. But even that will not be the end of the story. For both the UK and the EU, the relationship is too important not to seek to structure it in a formal way over time. So at a minimum, there will be negotiations about negotiations. We will have, sorry to say it, reason to be banging on about Europe for a very long time to come. Whatever happens, the relationship will not be as close as it is now, and there will be a consequent impact on the UK and the EU economy. On the back of the sort of free trade agreement that the government is pursuing, most, though not all, estimates by different groups of economists, including the government's own uh, economists, suggest that the UK economy will grow more slowly than it would have done had we chosen to stay in the EU. The impact of that might be to reduce growth by about 5% over the next 15 years or so. Note, this is not absolutely poorer. This is growing less fast. So we would have grown like that, we grow like that. Uh, <clears throat> Indeed, there are some economists who are estimating that the UK economic growth is perhaps already 2.5, 3 percentage points down from what it might have been compared with experience of other G7 countries over the last three years. Why the economic impact? Again, the answer is simple. As all the most ardent Brexiteers would accept, free trade brings benefits. The UK is leaving the biggest and most successful free trade area in the world. That puts friction into that trading relationship that friction carries costs, and those costs mean the economy will grow less quickly than it would otherwise have done. UK businesses selling into the EU face a loss of competitiveness, but so do EU businesses selling into the UK. That's not good for either side. And given the EU surplus on trading goods with the UK, which runs to some uh, £290 billion pounds or so, some have assumed that the EU will be desperate to cut a generous deal with the, with the UK. These are often the same people who have berated the EU over the years for being more of a political than an economic and trade project. So there is a strange myopia here. Just as a majority of people in the UK were prepared to pay a well-advertised economic price for return of UK sovereignty, so many in the EU will be prepared to pay an economic price to protect the integrity of the EU political project, in particularly the coherence of the reinforcing rights and obligations of the single market. So businesses on both sides of the channel will be impacted, there will be an adjustment of supply chains and some import substitution, some costs for consumers will go up, but the, given that the UK does 45% or so of our trade with the EU and the EU only 9% of its trade with the UK, the impact will be felt proportionally more in the UK. The hope and intention is that the loss of EU trading opportunities will be compensated for by the vigorous pursuit of trade deals with other countries around the world, uh, including and notably the US. I think the President was on this again today, was he not? And of course, free, I can't do a Trump, but it's going to be a great deal. Yeah, we know that. 
And of course, free trade generally being a good thing in economic terms, these deals will deliver economic benefits to the UK, no doubt about that. But these deals will have to do a lot of heavy lifting to completely negate the adverse economic impact of a poorer trading relationship with the EU. Distance still counts in trade. It will be a lot harder to build a good trading relationship with Australia, as good a trading relationship with Australia as we currently have, for example, with the Netherlands. Only the most optimistic of economists, I don't know if there's any economists in the room, but if that, um, begging your pardon, is not an oxymoron, uh, believe that a gung-ho deal with the US and others will let the UK economy surge. And the price of such a deal would be the wholesale acceptance of the US demands on things like agri-food standards and pharmaceutical pricing and purchases by the NHS. Issues which, to put it mildly, are not uncontroversial. So the famous chlorinated chicken would come home to roost. So the economic legacy of Brexit will be profound and long-lasting. Because the macro effects will be slower growth, this will not be immediately evident to many of us. We won't miss what we've never had. But that will be cold comfort meant for many thousands of businesses and their employees who will feel the impact of a poorer trading relationship with the EU directly. Some businesses and some sectors, particularly those embedded in low-margin, highly integrated European supply chains, will be hit hard. And it will take time for the economy as a whole to adjust to these new conditions. Now, the government has tools in its kit bag that it can deploy to mitigate the economic impact of Brexit, chief amongst than actions that improve the business environment in the UK. And the incoming government has promised vigorous action to do just that, borrowing £20 billion a year to invest in much-needed infrastructure, particularly, I'm sorry to say to this audience, in the Midlands and the North, but that's where the priority seems to be, increasing dramatically the amount of public funding available for research and development, good for the university sector, such an important driver of productivity and hence economic growth. But these things are not Brexit-dependent. Any government over the last few years could have done precisely the same. But there will be some opportunities available to this government that do flow directly from Brexit and taking back control. There is a chance to remake chunks of our regulatory state. The most immediate and prominent example of that is the need to rebase the UK's immigration system as free movement for citizens from the EU comes to an end. The promise is for an Australian-style points-based system which will bring EU citizens into the same system that applies to potential immigrants from other developed countries and beyond. There is no doubt that the UK has a continued need for workers from overseas, not just in high-skilled jobs like IT, but also to staff our health service, our care system and our hospitality sector. I am less certain that we have had a sufficient debate about the balance of that need for workers and concerns about the consequent levels of immigration. In short, does taking back control of our borders reconcile people to continued high levels of immigration? Or does the underlying concern about the perceived pressures of immigration persist? In some sectors, there will be no choice other than to create a new policy context. Leaving the EU means leaving the common agricultural policy, and the common fisheries policy. New law is required 
to give the government powers to manage those interests once we are out of the EU, hence the bills in the Queen's speech. And there is undoubtedly opportunity here. It would be difficult, I have to say, if somebody worked on the CAP for a long time, to create a more economically and environmentally perverse policy than the CAP. But our farmers will face this new future in the tender care of Her Majesty's Treasury. There will, I hope, be a vigorous debate about how public goods are delivered through any continued subventions to the industry. Likewise on fishing. Exit from the CFP, the Common Fisheries Policy, is a chance to improve the management of fish stocks in UK waters. It should not be a licence to weaken controls over exploitation of a precious common resource. On regulation more generally, the government will have a chance to make the law in a way which better suits British business and other interests. Businesses are, have already been warned to expect divergence, though on what is not clear, nor to what end. And there are examples of where EU regulation does not work well for British interests. There is a prospect, too, that Brexit will allow the UK to be a more agile regulator of new industries and new technology, from smart cars through biotech to AI and big data. But the UK will also have to accept the reality that the EU is now one of the major drivers of standards in world markets. Should the UK choose to diverge in domains like auto, chemicals, agri-food or pharmaceuticals, UK businesses will still need to produce to European standards for the EU and other markets. The cost of demonstrating compliance will be higher and the cost higher still if businesses are forced to produce to different standards for the UK market alone. Nor is it yet clear whether the government will include labour markets and environmental standards in its drive to diverge from the EU. Does it have the Working Time Directive or the Agency Workers Directive in its sights? What about the Habitats Directive or the Wild Birds Directive? If so, what will this mean for standards in the United Kingdom? For therein lies the rub. Quite apart from the interaction with the negotiation on our future relationship with the EU, these regulatory choices are important for the sort of society that we want to be. As we take back the freedom to make our regu own regulatory choices, from immigration to agriculture to workers' rights, so we import the political controversy that attends them. Those debates have been muted in the noise of the Brexit battle, but they are debates that we surely need to have if we're to build a post-Brexit British regulatory state that works for the country and critically commands something like common consent. So where does this leave us? It leaves us with Brexit far from being done. It leaves us with negotiations stretching to a distant horizon or potentially facing the destruction of no trade deal at the end of the year. It leaves us with an economic impact that will take years to wash through the economy as resources are reallocated in response to the change in trading conditions. It leaves us with a, su a substantial challenge to work out how we reorder the regulatory state in a post-Brexit world. All of this challenging in its own right, and it will preoccupy the government for a long time to come. But much of it is at best tangential to many of the most pressing issues which we face as a country. There would, 
I think, be broad consensus on what many of those issues are. I would include, personally, in no particular order, inequality, stalled productivity growth, poor export performance, climate change, increase in health and social care demands of an aging population, poor education and skills outcomes for too many young people, disenfranchisement and alienation in too many communities, a dysfunctional housing market. On none of these issues has our membership of the EU acted as a major constraint to broke progress. At least on each of them, there are EU member states that perform better than the UK. So none of these problems will go away because of Brexit. Indeed, a slow economic growth means less revenue for the exchequer. The resolution of these problems through increased public expenditure is slowed down. Thus, this is what I think of as the paradox of Brexit. This was at heart about taking back sovereignty. Taking back sovereignty is meant to improve how people feel about themselves, their communities, and the country we live in. But the very act of reclaiming that sovereignty has made it more, not less, difficult to deal with the issues which have the greatest impact on people's lives, and which I would contend have driven so much of the discontent that lay behind popular support for Brexit. Which begs the question, what will be the longer-term political impact of Brexit? Put crudely, will the fact that we have taken back control be sufficient to deal with the, the, un the undercurrents of dissatisfaction that drove Brexit? Will people look at the state of the country through a different lens, knowing that we have repatriated responsibility for sorting these things out ourselves? There is no doubt that we are already witnessing a significant change in British politics. The Conservative Party that won a handsome majority in the 2019 election is not the party of 2010 or 2015 or even 2017. Its economic programme, including the massive increase in infrastructure investment, greater state intervention through an enhanced research-led industrial strategy, continued capping of electricity prices and increases in the national minimum living wage, would not have looked out of place in an Ed Miliband conference speech circa 2013. And indeed, he made a conference speech pretty much on those lines. If mildly to the left economically, on social policy, this government is looking less liberal than its predecessors, at least with a heavy emphasis on law and order. On the NHS, on schools and social care, we are not seeing yet, uh, anyway, the radicalism of market-driven solutions. The state is back. This is the party that won more support than Labour in every social class and now has a better geographical representation across Great Britain than Labour. And no doubt the decisive, decisiveness of the party's position on Brexit and the weakness of the Labour leadership were contributory factors to that outcome, neither of which will necessarily be major issues necessarily. Watch this space by the time of the next election. But the realignment we have witnessed runs deeper than that. The Conservative Party has succeeded in latching on to the spirit of the times, a prioritisation of security over freedom, of certainty over the risks of globalisation, of homeland over the international, and won an election on the back of that. It has framed that victory with large promises. Brexit has been gilded with a touch of the millenarian. It will bring a new dawn, the unleashing of the spirit of the nation. Brexit will make Britain great again. 
no longer cabin, cribbed and confined by the prison of the EU, our native genius will be free to soar once again. Heady promises which now confront the gritty realities of life outside the EU. The forthcoming negotiations with the EU will be tough and messy. Leading proponents of Brexit on record as having once been prepared to accept, accept outcomes at the soft end, the sort of Norway end of the spectrum, toughen their position as the withdrawal negotiations progress, up to and including advocacy of a no-deal outcome. Will they be any more prepared to accept compromise in the next stage of this game? Or is it more likely that their impatience with the demands of the EU will drive them further and further away from an ambitious future relationship? But what happens to wider public opinion? If the dawn is not as bright as promised, if the impact uh, if the impact of Brexit dampens the ability of the government to inject resource and economic vigour back into those disaffected Midlands and Northern communities, what happens then? There is at least a chance that we discover that the pent-up frustrations in British society that led to Brexit will not be completely vented by Brexit. It is unlikely that the European Commission or the EU will become any more popular uh, in the UK through the negotiating process. Far from buyer's remorse, there is, I think, a fair chance of significant popular support for a tough line to be taken in the negotiations with the EU. And this in itself will materially increase the chances of a no trade deal outcome at the end of this year. And does it stop there? Brexit is about more than a rejection of our formal relationship with the EU. It raises deeper questions about identity, about people's sense of self and place, about culture and social attitudes. If the fact of Brexit does not lead to tangible change that addresses those yearnings, what impact does that have on British politics? We are too deep in now to step back. Upheavals radicalise. If the promised change is not delivered, the answer is rarely to stop more often to drive on. We have already seen the way in which the Brexit process has pitted the advocates of the new order against the institutions of state, the judiciary, business, the houses of parliament themselves, and the civil service. The broadly social liberal open market order that has governed the affairs of this country, at least since the early 90s, has been under sustained assault. Has that process run its course? Or will we look back in 15 years' time and recognise at the turn of this new decade we were still in the middle of an upheaval that will lead to profound changes in the nature of politics and the institutional order of this country? I want finally to turn to the future of the United Kingdom itself. Brexit is an argument about sovereignty, sits atop the existing arguments about sovereignty within the UK. We know now that one of those arguments is settled for the foreseeable future anyway, we are leaving the EU. But the settling of the one argument leaves the others more unsettled. Indeed, Brexit and the manner of Brexit has put more heat under those debates. As the aftermath of the election has demonstrated, the legitimacy of the current settlement faces a continued and invigorated challenge. Even without the pressure from nationalisms internal to the UK, the four governments of the United Kingdom uh, will have a substantial agenda of post-Brexit issues to sort out. 
the devolved governments have a legitimate interest in what follows next in terms of the negotiation of our future relationship with the EU. And as powers flow back from Brussels, they return in areas of devolved competence to the devolved governments. In another Brexit twist, leaving the EU single market leaves the UK internal market exposed to erosion if the four governments of the UK choose to exercise those returning powers in areas such as agriculture, fisheries and the environment to create different regimes and standards on different sides of the UK's internal borders. Common frameworks will be required to avoid that risk to the UK internal market, but common frameworks will require cooperation and compromise. In short, a maturity and a respect in UK intergovernmental relations, which has been in somewhat short supply in years just past. But of course, the context in which this new sophistication in intergovernmental dealings is required is hardly propitious. Nationalists in Northern Ireland and Scotland claim that Brexit has fundamentally changed the nature of the deal that underpins the concept of the United Kingdom as a state. For Northern Ireland, common Irish and UK membership of the EU was part of the solvent that allowed the Good Friday Agreement to shape new institutions and new hope for the future through the softening of old rigidities. The acceptance by this Prime Minister of a border effectively down the Irish Sea as part of the withdrawal agreement is vivid testament to the problematic nature of any attempt to resurrect, resurrect anything like the old border on the island of Ireland itself. In Scotland, part of the promise made in the 2014 independence referendum was of continued membership, guaranteed continued membership of the EU within a continuing United Kingdom. There is no sign yet of opinion in either Scotland or Northern Ireland shifting from that pro-EU stance taken in the EU referendum. Neither wanted out and both want back in. Part as consequence, support for independence on the one hand and unification on the other show no signs of withering away. Both are societies divided, more or less down the middle. And on, on the most existential of questions, their national future. And in Wales, the so-called indie curious are stirring the interest in independence to new levels. It will take a very brave person to predict where all this will lead. The hard Brexit to which we are heading will hardly propitiate opinion in Scotland. The working through the Northern Ireland Protocol will put a new dynamic into relations on the island of Ireland as the economy of, the North, of Northern Ireland responds to a different gravitational pull. At the same time, of course, the alternatives are no less problematic than they have always been and fraught with risk. In another of Brexit's twists, we have the SNP arguing to maintain the benefits of the EU single market while arguing for an exit from the UK single market, uh, which takes four times more trade uh, from Scotland does, than does the EU market. We have the SNP arguing that the Brexit is economically irrational while promoting independence for Scotland whose fiscal deficit is several times higher than that of the United Kingdom as a whole. Meanwhile, Brexiteers deny the legitimacy of the SNP's claim for their drive for independence. So what's source for the UK's sovereignty goose is evidently not source for the Scottish 
independence gander. The May 2021 elections for the Scottish Parliament will be critical. Should the SNP and its allies win a majority on a specific referendum mandate, there will be immense pressure on the UK government to cede the holding of a second legal independence referendum. If that were to happen, the results on current polling would be very difficult to predict. This, someone lives in Scotland, is deeply unsettling. The status quo is fragile, the future uncertain. Opinion in England appears increasingly equivocal on the value of the UK Union. The different concepts of sovereignty held by many in Scotland, Northern Ireland, and in increasing numbers in Wales cannot be squeezed into the Brexit pot. Things may hold for now, but there is a chance that the story of this government that the history books will tell will not be about exit from one union, but about exit from two. So, to conclude, sorry, it's all a bit miserable, but there we go. Three and a half years of paralysis over the UK's withdrawal from the EU has blindsided us, I think, to the scale of the challenges that lies ahead. In a desperation just to get the thing over the line and to end the agony of bitter indecisiveness, we have really not had much of a debate about what might actually come after exit. There is a world, there is a world in which the process of exit begins to wash out of UK life the political frustration that led to Brexit and the division that it has engendered. There is a world where the UK and the EU find reason in a negotiation, the economic impact of Brexit is contained and the UK stumbles back to politics that seem somewhere close to normal. And while in this slightly crazy world that would feel like an outcome, I fear that it is one that is not perceptibly within reach. The momentum that has propelled this upheaval in British affairs is not yet expended. The more likely scenario is that the travails on the road ahead will lead to yet more of the unexpected and to outcomes that we can only half guess at from where we stand now. Brexit done, we've barely started. Thank you very much. Um, well, thank, thank you very much in, indeed, Philip, for well, was a, a real dose of realism for us there, it has to be said. Um, we've got time for some questions and debate. I want to start with a question, if I may, which is that, um, you know, you've described an enormous set of changes and some huge challenges. The, the British state, in both its political and official forms, um, has always been thought of, um, certainly compared to other countries, as being cap capable of overcoming challenges of this kind, flex sufficiently flexible and adaptive to be able to meet challenges to master them, that its political system has been capable of gradual change rather than revolutionary change and so on. Um, given the magnitude of what you've described, is the British state up to it? I, I know it's a very good... I think at base, yes, it is. I think the, you, what I experienced personally um, through the referendum and its aftermath and working in the Department for Exiting the EU the sense was the response of the British state to this massive challenge and resources going into that, the, um, the, the, the capability of the thinking in, in order to shape all that needed to be shaped in order to get ready um, for Brexit. So 
and I'm bluntly, I'm a historian to trade, there's been plenty of moments in the life of this country which have been, um, in some respects, more difficult. You have to go back several decades now, but nevertheless, uh, we will, of course, pull through this um, uh, as, as a country in the British state, I think, will perform um, to the level required. My concern more is we've not had the political debates about these choices that lie ahead. And without that political debate, on things like immigration, on the nature of financial services regulation, which you might think, well, that's just going to matter to a few bankers in the city, but actually is fundamentally important economically, but also, again, to the sort of uh, economy we, we, we construct, the sort of society that we want to have. It seems to me that what we've been missing is the public <coughs> debate about these things, which then inform the political decisions the politicians uh, take and the civil servants then implement. And that, I think, has been the major gap in the market. Thank you very much. Right, let's open it up to some questions. I've got a lady here. And Still for another 10 days, we are in the European parliamentary constituency of the Southwest and Gibraltar. You haven't mentioned Gibraltar no. and maybe Spain. Yeah, and that's an interesting one. Um, so Gibraltar, of course, voted absolutely overwhelmingly to stay in because they can see what's coming down the track. Uh, Gibraltar has already been subject to difficult negotiations as part of the withdrawal agreement context uh, where the Commission did its traditional role of brokering a deal between Spain and the UK. What happens when we leave? Again, we haven't sort of worked this one out yet. We become a third country. Who does the Commission back in any future debates between Spain and the UK on Gibraltar? Not the UK. They will be looking after the, mem uh, the interests of the member state, which in this context will be um, Spain. Same will happen to Cyprus, the sovereign base area there, and the same will happen to the other little bits of the sort of residue of empire, if you like. If there are questions about trade in the Falklands Islands and EU markets, um, of the financial services, recognition of the competence of the other overseas territories in those markets. We have got to get used to the notion that we become a third country. And so protecting those interests, perfectly viable we can do that, but will require the expenditure of more diplomatic and political capital by the UK, because we will be doing it as a third country where those interests um, uh, bang into EU interests. Again, it's something that in the, the UK debate, I'll not comment on Brexit itself, just that sort of was informed that debate, People forget that the, U the EU is designed as a legal order to manage relationships within the boundaries of the EU. It is about the relationships between member states. Doing deals with third countries is ancillary to that major purpose. We become a third country, we face what all other third countries face, is perpetually tough negotiations with the EU to assert our interests with the EU. And that will be particularly acute when the Spanish government says, uh, we are worried about uh, <coughs> the fact that your airport, Gibraltar, sits on what we think of as Spanish territory. We don't think you're doing enough about tobacco smuggling. We don't think your border on fisheries is the correct... And all of these niggle points uh, will flare up again, sure as eggs is eggs. Um, yeah, I'm you one question in my mind. Um, but I, your talk... Sorry. Um, your talk um, caused me to think of another one. Um, 
I'm wondering what you think about the actual future of the EU itself, given yeah. the political stresses yeah. that are already in evidence in places like Hungary yes. and Poland, yeah. um, and uh, whether you think the effect of us leaving will, uh, as I suspect a lot of people on the leave side of the argument would secretly like, uh, sees the uh, breakup of the EU yeah. itself, or whether you think it will withstand these stresses and continue as it is currently constituted. I did make reference in my talk to the political project of the EU, which is held very close to the hearts of folk like Angela Merkel, um, and Macron and others. It is a political project, and in many ways Brexiters were right about that, and that has been clear from the off. We mastered it a bit in the UK because we, um, you know, we, we, we focused on the single market, on, on ex expansion of the EU, and we tended to downplay its political dimension. What the withdrawal agreement has demonstrated is the ability of the EU to unite around an objective, which was to sort out that, uh, the exit of the UK in a way that protected interests uh, of the EU. And there's one particular dimension of that that I think is worth stressing. Um, the EU were unstinting in their support for Ireland through this debate. And if you think about the issues, this is complicated stuff, you know, uh, not many people on the mainland of GB mainland really understand Northern Ireland or Irish politics, as was demonstrated, I have to say, time and time again. Um, how more so that folk in the EU, not that this is just a really complex set of issues, surely Leo Varadkar can just go and sort it out um, with, uh, with, the, with the Brits, and we cannot expend our political capital looking after them. No, no, no. They were absolutely rock solid in their support for Ireland. Why? Look at the makeup of the EU. Lots of small states, some of them with rather big, bossy neighbours not so far away. And if they know that they face something like the same existential challenge that Ireland is facing, they want an absolute guarantee they're going to have the back of the EU. And so that support for Ireland was, in a sense, demonstrating um, that we are a collective, we look after each other's interests. And so, in a way, I think Brexit, certainly so far, has had the effect of increasing that solidarity. It's not a big surprise. We all know that when, you know, you've got a little team together, somebody flounces out of the room, then the instinct is for the team to, to sort of huddle more closely. The, the, a lot of folks say, yeah, yeah, fine, that was all right through the withdrawal agreement negotiation, they just wanted our money, sort out citizens and so on. When it comes to the real negotiation, you know, the Germans will be worrying about BMWs because we buy so many BMWs. French will worry about fish and, and cheese and what have you. The Danes will, and so their interests will, will, dis, uh, will, will fracture. I see no evidence of that. And as I said, every time somebody says, oh, couldn't you just move it this direction to suit our interests? They'll get a ticking off from other member states saying, no, remember this is about uh, the coherence of our project about the coherence of the single market, if we're seen to do favours for the United Kingdom, that challenges that overall project. Now, how that evolves over five, ten years is very difficult to foresee. It's not just uh, the rule of law, Hungary and Poland, the, uh, the Eurozone itself, I think most economists say, is still on sugarly foundations. Um, you've got issues about migration, you've got all sorts of issues that they need to face. But if the EU does, as a, uh, a consequence of those issues, run into more troubled times, it will not be as a consequence of Brexit. 
it will be its own internal, if you like, but Brexit has had the opposite effect to increase the solidarity. Right. Okay, let's go for some more uh, questions. We have a gentleman in the middle there, yeah. Thank you. Um, just to come back to your title of your presentation, Brexit and the Future Governance of the United Kingdom, and you talked about historians looking back at Brexit. I want to ask a slightly different question. Do you think in 10 years' time, historians will look back on the fundamental restructuring of the civil service <laughs> and use Brexit as a catalyst for that? Um, that's, a, that's a nice question. Um, so for those who don't get the import of that, but uh, read blogs by the chief number 10 advisor that um, one name as you probably all know, lots of weirdos and wackos uh, join the civil service. Diversity in the civil service, diversity of background and thinking, patterns of mind, absolutely essential. And the civil service, no doubt, has been too identical over the years. Um, but it has changed. And let me just say, on record, I worked with a department I worked with that grew hugely in my time there. Started off with, um, when I joined, about sort of two, 250 folk, with 750 by the time I left. Median age 29, were brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and they were very, they were a, a very, what I would think of as young London demographic from all parts of the UK, uh, uh, from all sorts of backgrounds, very, very diverse, and they were absolutely brilliant, and they were very committed to the job they had to do, which was, remember, impartial civil service to support the government of the day. That's the job we did. What they thought about Brexit, how they voted, was of no concern to me. I never asked that question of any of my team. I forbade my own team to make those inquiries of their people. This was irrelevant to the job we had to do. And actually, it's a credit to the education system in the UK, universities and others, that we have such capable of young folk coming through. Oh, so that was just get that off my chest, and now I'll answer your question. Um, I don't know, clearly. Is there going to be a fund? Now, incoming governments are always quite keen on so-called mob changes, machinery of government changes. I think by changing the brass plates on various doors around Whitehall, you get a sort of a, a fundamental reworking. Uh, uh, you release a lot of energy in the system. I, think, I don't think that will have much of an impact, never has had. There is a deeper question about whether you can actually get rid of a lot of the civil service. Uh, whether you can, whether the civil service in itself is an inhibitor to dynamism in the economy. And I, I am deeply unpersuaded by that. Um, if you've read my Guardian article today, we're already about 25,000 25, civil servants up because of the challenge of Brexit. In, a, in the modern world, like it or not, you need folk to handle regulation, to do the legislation. And don't forget, most civil servants don't sit in Whitehall, they sit in Newcastle or Cumbernauld uh, or in Swansea doing stuff like driving licences, pensions, benefit payments and so on and so forth. Um, so the notion that you can sort of get rid of all of that is, is actually a challenge not just for civil service, it's a challenge to the nature of the modern state. So while anybody would agree, I think that you can inject more energy in the civil service, you can inject more talent, you can get inject more diversity of thinking. Um, actually, radical restructuring, I think, is, is more of a risk uh, than a solution. 
And just one final thought on all this. Um, we know all the problems we face in this country, basically. These problems of government are always well advertised. So say it's like social care. Social care um, is intensely about people. There is no algorithm, however clever your mathematician, that is going to solve the problem of social care. It requires people who understand systems, political systems and human relationships, as well as clever people who can do the algorithms that manage the, the, the flow of money through how you structure systems like that. And that requires a civil service that is, in my view, deeply rooted in the traditional values uh, the civil service had, objectivity, impartiality, in order to deliver through ministers to the citizens of the country. Thank you very much. That was very interesting. Uh, one of the aspects of EU collective action has been sort of common services. A good example is the Medicines Agency, which yes. we lost from London, where part of the money to Brussels was for functions that didn't have to be duplicated uh, by all the member states. How much assessment has there been within government of how much Britain has to re implement some of those national measures in order to accommodate the loss of common services? Yeah, so a lot is the answer to that, as you would expect. So we had a programme running, going back some time now, of working through with all the existing regulatory agencies uh, what their responsibilities might look like post-Brexit. So there is an allied question as to whether the UK stays in not just the medicines agency but the uh, aerospace agency and the chemicals agency as a sort of a visiting third country uh, looks unlikely to me now, given the noises that uh, Savage Javid and others are making. It looks like we will be um, stepping away from those things, which business will be very worried about, because it will mean it will have to, in a sense, duplicate the approval process. You'll have to go through the UK agency, but you'll also have to go through the EU agency as well, which, which effectively doubles your compliance costs. But that aside, um, all of this regulation comes back to the UK. Somebody's got to do it. And some of these things are quite difficult to work out who's going to do it. So let me take my, um, uh, let me take state aids as one example of that. Uh, we do not have a state aids regime in the UK. We don't even know whether state aid is reserved or devolved uh, to the, uh, whether it's reserved to the UK government or is devolved to the, um, uh, the devolved governments. Because state aids is not mentioned in the devolution acts. And if you remember this is, um, if it's not in the act, it's assumed to be devolved. Why didn't we put it in the Act? Because it was all part of EU responsibility. We didn't need to put it in the Act. So you've got an argument about who that, what sort of regime do you have and who runs that? Is it the, the Competition and Markets Authority? And if so, can they hold the UK government to account as well as the Scottish government, the Welsh government, and so on and so forth? But then it gets, I think, deeper than that. So you sort out, okay, all this stuff coming back. But if you look again in financial services, um, so the Prudential Regulation Authority, um, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Financial Reporting Council, all have major regulatory responsibilities. Who gets what? Who supervises them? Where is the accountability in that system? What's the role of the bank? What's the role of the Treasury? Have you heard any debate about this? It's going on in financial services industry itself because they're worrying about this. And they're actually, paradoxically perhaps, their worry is about all this stuff coming back to the UK doesn't make the regulatory environment better. Now why? 
Well, I was chief executive, the better regulation executive, for a couple of years back in, uh, um, in the back end of the Labour government, early part of the coalition government. We spent more time, I think, I can say more or less truthfully, worrying about gold plating of EU regulation by UK authorities than we did worrying about the, UK, the EU regulation itself. In other words, British regulators are capable of regulating with the best of them. And we, again, we've just not had that debate yet. What sort of regulatory regimes? Your money, I hope, you have some money invested somewhere in pensions, in whatever it may be. And what sorts of protections do you want from that? And what is the trade-off between that regime and the flexibility of financial services businesses to make money, to trade internationally? And that's just one sector. So this ramifies, as I said, sector by sector uh, across the economy. And I haven't even got on to wild birds or habitats. I'm just, let me just give you one little insight. Habitats directive. I sat over the course of quite a number of years in a lot of meetings where big important ministers berated the Habitats Directive because of newts. Can you pick this up? <laughs> so the Habitats Directive gives a EU-wide protection to newts. There aren't many newts, I don't know, in France or Germany. There's loads in the UK, apparently. So, but you want to build a house on top of a newt in the UK, it's really problematic. You've got to find a new home for the newt, and it delays you. But, and and you know, ministers just tear the air about this stuff. So fine, let's get rid of the Habitats Directive. Ministers will discover fairly quickly, and there may be some in this room, a folk who like newts. Yeah? In other words, these things all carry political controversy with them. So as you make the change, maybe to lower standards, there'll be lots of folks saying, hang on a minute, I don't like that. And whereas those debates previously, many of them happened in the EU, where the NGOs were brilliantly effective at lobbying, but we didn't see an awful lot of it. All of that stuff comes back here. Just sorry, I'm set off now. Just one more example. Agri-food. Huh? Why is agri-food so difficult? Because it's not just about the producer interests. When we're looking at, at, at chlorinated chickens, we're not just worrying about the chicken farmers in the UK, though we should be, frankly. We're worrying about animal welfare. We're worrying about consumer standards. We're worrying about the rural way of life in the UK, which is supported by the industries that produce those foods. These things are intrinsically difficult controversial issues. You change the regulation, you need that debate at minimum uh, to see whether we can get something like consensus on those issues. Sorry, it's a long answer, but it's yes, important. Thank you very much. Okay, so two, two down here, yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah, yeah. If I haven't answered, yeah, do put your hands up. So um, you mentioned the debates that we need to have and that just haven't taken place so far. But how do we have those debates when you've got Boris Johnson denying the kind of choices that have already been made, for example, with the border down the Irish Sea? Now, that is a debate that had to be had as to yes. where, what was going to happen. Now that, that, that question has been settled, but when he is then kind of even denying that that choice has been made, how do, how do you... How do we as a country go about even having well, those debates? I think that, you know, that goes to the heart of it. Huh? Um, so, you know, credit to him. Um, the election result we've just had should not have happened. I know anybody in this room who's studied the history of elections know that you're not meant to win another term after three years in office as a party. You're not meant to win an election when you've had this absolutely ghastly uh, show of, device, of, of division within a party. And he, the Prime Minister took an enormous risk. And credit to him, he took that risk 
and he won and he won handsomely on an electoral system that you might not all think is entirely wonderful, <laughs> but that's a story for another day. Um, having taken that risk, he basically now walks on water. There will, it seems to be, be very, very little chance of any major dissent within this Conservative Party for at least a couple of years. And it'll come over time, it always does. Because they'll have to fire a few folk, and they'll sit on the back benches grumbling, and they'll become, over time, the little eddies of discontent will grow. But there is a risk that having succeeded so markedly on, what was the percentage of the vote he got? Less than 50%. But he takes that as essentially as a mandate to drive this debate very hard in one direction, wherever that might take him. Um, and that will be a temptation, but I think it's also a risk. Because if you, if you think, I personally believe the biggest thing the country needs now um, is not, if you like, more partisan politics pulling us off in one direction. It is, a, okay, fine, we've made this decision, we're leaving, now it's about time to get the band back together again. It's about reuniting opinion across the country and giving people a sense that the government is for all. It's no longer about remain or leave. And how do you do that? You accept that these issues are difficult and that you need to engage the opposition, civic society, uh, and the public at large in the debate about settling those things. A wise government would move into that territory and a wise government would do that in a way it also is talking to people in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Simple there, yeah. Um, can I, um, you mentioned about the possibility of um, you know, the trade deal at the end of this year and um, that you thought it, if we get one it's like to be thin, I think was your words. And um, a former civil servant who has also spoken in Bath, uh, Sir Adam Rogers, has, has talked about a quick and dirty uh, trade deal, although he has actually said that that would be um, zero tariff, zero quota. Um, I kind of wonder what, you know, given them, what's, what would that consist of in terms of the level playing field regulations? I mean, the, the withdrawal, Boris Johnson's political declaration does actually say that there should be, that the future relationship must ensure a robust commitment to level playing field um, regulation, state aid, competition policy, social environment, etc., etc. So, can you say a little bit more about well, it, please? And the political declaration is, does what it says on the tin. It is not a binding legal instrument. It is the, um, it was the attempt to, in its origin, it was actually an attempt to demonstrate to sceptics in the Tory party itself that, um, you know, once the withdrawal agreement was done, Mrs. May's version of that, they would move into the sunny uplands of a, a trade agreement which would better suit them. Uh, but Boris Johnson got hold of it. It didn't change it a lot, but very significant elements of it did change. I think the, um, that is the, the big question about whether we can get a deal at the end of the year. Um, paradoxically, if we're going to use that word, if, the, if Boris Johnson says, do you know what, I want the scope to diverge in uh, level playing field issues, he's not said he wouldn't do that. And there's been lots of hints like on state aids that he does want to do that. The EU will say, fine, we can negotiate that, but... Um, because of that, it's no longer zero tariff or zero quota. And then you've got to negotiate tariff schedules and quota. And that's what takes time in trade negotiations. So the more that the Prime Minister says, we want divergence, the more complicated getting a trade deal over the line becomes. Zero tariff, zero quota is quite a big deal. 
Um, and it is obviously reasonably attractive, but again, put yourself in the boots of a, of a business exporting pies, say garden. So when this deal is done, you may have no quota on pies, um, and uh, you may be paying no tariff, but you will have to demonstrate where the contents of that pie came from. Are you using Canadian wheat? Uh, are you using Argentinian beef? Whatever it may be. Rules of origin, in other words. And at some point, the cost of doing that, this already happens with trade deals all the time now, the cost of compliance with rules of origin is such as saying, so I can't be bothered, I'm just going to pay the tariff. Right? So it's the complication of a deal. Um, and it, as I said, if the, if the Prime Minister says we won't play on the level playing field, they'll say, fine, um, you, uh, uh, you don't get zero to quota, you don't get um, zero tariff, and your rules of origin regime is a wee bit tougher. Okay, so I've got to, we'll take one more round of questions. So, do you want here? to do two or three? And yeah, take two. Yeah, exactly. Right. So here, and then we'll come up here. You have two questions there. Um, Joe Archer here. I've been involved with quite a lot of um, for Europe groups, and there isn't a single reference uh, uh, rally that I haven't been to since the, since this huge mistake was made. Brexit remains a terrible decision, no matter how many people believe in it. Okay or how many people have been persuaded to believe in it. That original referendum uh, was advisory and it is still not more legitimate because it's being treated as a, as a, a mandatory referendum. Uh, the courts have decided that already. Now, um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to disagree with you because I don't think that the country is going to come together no matter how many people would like it to. Okay, we feel, Remainers, that we're being told to shut up and put up. But you remember, cast yourself back to before the election, we were very close to a second referendum. And that general election was called for the sole purpose of enabling Boris Johnson to purge his own party and silence the rest of us. Now, my question is, <laughs> My question is, in what circumstances would you envisage the possibility of a confirmatory referendum? For example, if, if Nicola Sturgeon forces her way through and, and, and obtains another one for Scotland, does that strengthen the case? Um, we, democracy didn't even stop at the end of the general election. No matter Boris Johnson's majority, what circumstances, no, could there be ever, but what circumstances would enable okay. a second referendum now. Okay. Thanks so much. And, and up to here. Yeah. Did you want to answer that directly? No, no, I'll, no, I'll pick up two or three. Two then, questions yeah. here, yeah. Hello. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, talking about the fishing policies, um, obviously a major problem has been the fact that the government has sold quotas, masses of quotas. Um, what happens to those quotas on um, January the 31st? Do they still stay or do they have to be resold? Because obviously yeah, that's, that's a sticky... Well, that's a sticky. fairly specific question. I'll try and answer it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Excuse me. As an engineer, I'm very much interested in common standards. Yes. Now, in light of the strong discussions already taking place with America, are you thinking or do we go back to imperial systems versus... <laughs> 
Right, let me let me do those in reverse order. Um, we could go back to Imperial, but my God, we'd struggle, wouldn't we? I mean, I'm probably, you know, I'm sort of reaching my seventh decade, I think, but you, you know, I was on that cusp of the change as a youngster in school where some of it was still, and I, I mean, I still confuse myself. I, I, I swim in metres, but I run in miles, and I bike in miles just to can show that I, 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 it would be, in my book, completely bonkers to go back to Imperial, but if somebody wishes to do that, good luck to them. Fishing, it wasn't the government who sold quota, it was fishermen who sold quota. So the, the rights on quota were um, held by the fishermen, and they sold a lot of fishermen, uh, sold their rights to, uh, to companies, fishermen from other countries. Those rights, those are essentially property rights, and uh, it would be a brave government that said, oh, sorry guys, uh, we're going to remove that, it'll be expropriation. It's a, it's a long time since so I dealt with fisheries policy, but that would be the instinctive reaction to that. There is, however, a longer-term perspective that says, well, uh, UK boats only land, whatever it is, 40 South, I can't remember the percentage of fish caught in UK waters, uh, the rest go to foreign, uh, uh, to foreign owners, uh, and we need to rebalance that over time. But if you put the boot on the other foot, if there are property rights that British folk have in the EU, you wouldn't want the EU to come along and say, sorry guys, it's all changed, off you go, uh, we're not going to compensate you for the loss of those rights. So it requires, in my mind, a civilised debate. And don't forget the quid pro quo for this is access to the EU market for UK fisheries products. We don't eat an awful lot of stuff we catch in UK water, or is caught in UK waters. We have not yet developed a taste for velvet crabs, which is a big delicacy in Spain, caught off the northwest coast of Scotland. Um, has anybody eaten a velvet crab? Uh, but they are, and if we can't get those on the EU market, they've nowhere to go. And if you look at, just farm on this one, the sophistication of that, those crabs are picked up by a refrigerated lorry in Ullapool. They're got to Edinburgh Airport, um, in containers as, as our nephrops, what you'd think was longestine, packed to get to market within 24 hours so that they are, for longestine, still alive. Yeah? So you can get them to a restaurant uh, anywhere in Europe um, and this is fresh fish. You put delay in that export chain, you kill it. Yeah? Those are the risks that the fishermen face. So the big guys, the, the pelagic fishermen, the ones who catch the mackerel and the... And the uh, <coughs> And the herring, the, the, the big guys who catch a lot of the, the cod and the, uh, uh, the haddock and the whiting and so on, are going to have to think about their interests, others in the industry as well. Final question, one really question, it's a sort of statement. Um, uh, are we going to have a confirmation? What are the circumstances? Currently, I see no circumstances under which we would have a confirmatory referendum. Uh, we have a government with a majority of 80. Uh, that government is going to be in power. It will get rid of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. I spent three years working in the coalition government. The Fixed-Term Parliament Act is currently the only thing left from that very ambitious constitutional reform agenda of the Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, but it will go, and the election will probably won't be in winter, uh, 24 in the summer. Um, but on current uh, prognosis, um, it is going to be a very, very uphill battle for any opposition to challenge uh, the Conservative Party in that election. You see that now. Uh, it is a very, very big hill uh, for the opposition to climb. So, on that pro prospectus, uh, I think there is uh, a vanishingly small probability of any revisiting of our exit from the EU. 
Uh, I don't say that's forever. Um, if you look at the demographic of, of voting for, uh, for Brexit, that clear uh, imbalance if you like, between older and younger generations. Um, and uh, there will come a time, uh, within the next 10 years I predict, there will be 15 years, let's say, there will be a British Prime Minister to stand up and say, do you know what, chums in the EU, we've got a reasonable deal with you, but we could have a better one. That won't be bad back in. Um, but we will have a good relationship with the EU over time because it is too important for them and for us not to have a good relationship. But my final point on all of this, and this is from experience of two referendums. Referendums, in my humble opinion, are horrible things. So I, not only did I live through the Scottish referendum as a, as, as a citizen in Scotland, I supported the UK government in its arguments to the people of Scotland about staying in the Union. That was, for those of anybody in the room who did experience that, was more divisive, more difficult, more confrontational uh, than the EU referendum was in, uh, across the whole of the UK. If you look at opinion in Scotland, it has barely shifted since 2014. Uh, Scotland, as I said in my talk, is a country divided down the middle. If anything, support for independence has edged upwards. That's what referendums do. And I, I'm sorry, because I'm going to end on a slightly gloomy note, but in you know, answer to your a wise government would see that the risk is that that division perpetuates and is felt by many people to the detriment of our sense of ourselves and ultimately to the detriment of the government because of the, in a sense, the underlying instability that that would cause. So a wise government will not, I think, go back on the question of the EU because we voted rightly or wrongly, in one direction. But it would say, come on, it is now time to move on. So the answer to your question, in a sense, my, this is where I start to get prescriptive to the government to say, if it was wise, it would think of ways of healing that divide. Because it will take, otherwise, it will take a very long time uh, for that to come out of the bloodstream of our politics, and I don't think that's a good thing. So there we go. Okay. Thank well, you very much. Thank you.